Welcome to the Rocky Valley Podcast. This is Pastor Jason Moe. We're glad you stopped in to have a listen, and we hope that this blesses you in some way. James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Worship through trials. Worship through trials. I had a hard time naming this sermon, to be honest. I toyed with, with several. Uh, what makes us sin? Where does our sin come from? Where does our help come from? I toyed with all of those thoughts, but given the theme of chapter 1 of the book of James, I went with worship through trials. And as we pick up here in the book of James, we reflect. reflect. We may reflect for some of us. Some of us may refract, but I doubt any of us will reflect. We reflect... Briefly, on the context that brings us to this point. And so we will recall that we determined that this letter was written to the brethren, or the 12 tribes that were scattered abroad. This is important uh, because it basically shows the the application to us today as Christians, as those uh, who are uh, here in this world. We certainly are in that same realm of the brethren who were scattered abroad in this time. And so this letter is written kind of to us today. It was a way to test their faith, a way to to do a couple of things, a reminder, you may say, a reminder of how a believer was supposed to act, the things that a believer would do. And so we looked at the trials and the troubles first, and we recognized that the way a believer responds to suffering is different than how a non-believer may respond to suffering. Uh, We said as believers, we are to respond by counting it joy or recognizing that the trial is improving our faith. It is sanctifying us. It's drawing us nearer to God. We reflected last week on the rich and poor and recognized that both the rich and poor have to take their joy and their pleasure not in the things that they have temporarily, not in their possessions, not in their richness or in their poorness, but have to instead find their pleasure, find their boasting in their spiritual standing. So what is their relationship with God? So we can't focus on our riches or our treasures that we have laid up on this earth. We have to take our boasting in what we have eternally, in our relationship, in our salvation. And so tonight we come to a place where we are getting out of the trials, getting out of the, the, the rich and the poor. And I think James talks about trials and then mentions money because I think James understood that as people, even all the way back in James's time, it was normal for people to have struggles and trials when it came to their money, to the way that they viewed money. And so now we're going to kind of transition out of that. Uh, And we're going to start to look at at what our reaction is to God and what can happen to us in trials if we don't have a proper perspective of worshiping God while we're in the trials. What can happen to us in terms of if we don't respond by loving God, if we don't respond by worshiping God in our trials, then we're going to give in to the temptations that come along with it. And we're going to begin to serve the lusts of our flesh. So please stand this evening. As we honor the reading of God's holy and infallible and errant word from James chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. 
But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for this book penned by the hands of James under the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we believe to be your words to us, God. God, we pray that your word would have its effect on us that you desire, that I would say nothing in error, and that your Holy Spirit would have its way here this evening. And God, as always, we will praise you and we will give you the glory for what you do. And all God's people said, and you may be seated. We're actually going to look back at a verse that we looked at in conclusion to last week's message. So last week we kind of looked at it. Uh, in, in a way of concluding, this week we're going to kind of take off with it, if that makes sense. Because we weren't really able to look at it fully unless you guys wanted to stay all night last week. And I didn't figure you guys wanted to spend several hours on our third point of our message last Sunday night. So we're going to kick back off with verse 12, even though we looked at it briefly last Sunday evening. James writes in verse 12, Blessed is the man. That word itself is something we need to look at. Overjoyed is kind of what it would mean. Uh, overjoyed, rejoicing, kind of a, a, an emphatic word. Something that might say, you know, uh, I have my extreme happiness. I have my extreme just over the top. You know what I mean? You ever see a kid when he gets a birthday present and they're just, they're almost shaking with excitement. And that's kind of the word there that James is using. Blessed, joyous, rejoicing is the man. Rejoicing is the man who does what? He endures temptation. He writes, rejoicing, blessed is going to be the man who remains steadfast through the trial and through the temptation. So, so let's think about what he's writing. Look back at verse 3 with me because we don't need to forget the context. He said, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. I want, I want to clue you into something. That same word, patience is the same word endurance used here in verse 12. It's just translated a little differently for ease of us to read it. And so that same word, patience and endurance, are the same word. And so James is writing back here, and he says, the testing of your faith produces your patience. So he's saying that the trial that you're going to go through is going to produce patience in you. It's going to produce a steadfastness. And then he goes on in verse 12, and he says, when you've endured that trial... And you have this patience and this steadfastness that is developed as a result of that trial, you will rejoice. So he's kind of, anybody ever experienced that? Anybody ever been in a trial and you thought, I don't know how I'm going to make it? And then when you get to the other side, you rejoice not just in the fact that you've made it, but in the fact that you know that you've drawn nearer to God while you were in it. It's not just that I survived, it's that I thrived, so to speak. It's not just that I got through it, it's that I know I got through it with the help of God. I know that God is the one that made it. And now my faith is made even stronger for the next trial. Does that make sense? And so James is saying that's the man that rejoices. He rejoices in his endurance of the trial and his endurance of the trial is what gives him his rejoicing. 
And so he writes that. And so he says, we've endured. And then what do we get? We have the crown of life to look forward to. The victor's crown. Now this crown of life, I didn't really focus on it very long last week. This phrasing is really an idea that we get from the crown or the wreath that would be placed on the victor's head after an athletic event uh, in Greek times. And so when uh, someone would run a race or swim a race or do whatever athletic event that they did then, and they would come to the time where they won, and in the Greek times they would take this great ornate wreath and they would place it on the winner's head. And that was called the victor's crown. And so as James is writing this, he's kind of reminding us that the prize for enduring, so the athlete's prize for enduring well and for winning the race would be this victor's crown. And so he's reminding the believers, listen, as you endure, as you go through trials, you need to never lose sight of the fact that you're enduring to a purpose. You're enduring to a crown. You're enduring to this crown of life, this victor's crown. And I think there's something else, though, we can draw from this verse as well as we start to see this crown. And I think this will kind of tie things in for you. Back in Mark chapter 15, and I'll read it. You don't have to to turn there, but I'll read it. Back in Mark chapter 15, it says, So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. And then the soldiers led him away into the hall called the Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison. They clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him. And bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And then he had mocked him. They took the purple off and put his clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. You see, there's a, there's a crown placed on a Savior's head. And you say, well, how, how does that relate to the crown of life. How's that, how's that relate to the crown of endurance? Well, fast forward to verse 37 with me. It says that Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. So this crown is placed on the head of Jesus. And then he's mocked and he's cursed and he's beaten and he's sped upon and he's tortured and all of these things. And he ultimately is died. But bless God. That's not where the story ends. Jesus then, as we know, three days later, rose from that grave. He ascended. His stone was rolled away. The tomb was empty as we looked at this morning. And that crown that had been meant to mock him, that crown that had been meant to torture him, that crown that had been placed to signify, ah, look at this crown meant for the deity. Look at this victor there on that cross. As everybody mocked him and cursed him, that very thing would ultimately become our crown of life. The way that we would ever have a crown of life ourselves was because Jesus, Jesus enduring the punishment there on that cross. And so we see what? That life becomes ours in terms of of salvation as a result of Jesus' endurance. And so James begins to write and he begins to talk about endurance through trials and endurance through our temptations. And he begins to write and he says, the crown of life comes on the other side of the endurance. 
And so he's kind of relating us back to Jesus, that we don't get this crown of life as a result of no persecution. If Christ was persecuted, if Christ suffered, if the opportunity for life could only come on the other side of suffering and on the other side of endurance, we can't expect to get the crown of life. We can't expect to have that joy without also enduring some persecution in times of trouble. We would be crazy to expect that. Scripture tells us that we are going to endure persecution. Scripture tells us if we love Jesus, we're going to be hated by the world because the world hated him. And so we are going to endure persecution in order to embrace the crown of life. So let's move on to verse 13 through 15. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. And so these verses, if if you really get right down to it, they're actually quite straightforward. But sometimes they tend to spark some controversy. And so let's dive in just a little bit for a few moments. And I want us to recognize a couple of things in these verses. And the first thing I want us to recognize is that temptation does not come from God. Our temptation for sin does not come from God. We can't blame God. He says, when no one say when they're tempted, I am tempted by God. But you say verses 2 through 8, you said that sometimes our trials come from God as a way of testing our faith. So, so it's almost contradictory, Brother Jason, that on one hand our trials can, can solidify our faith, and on the other hand you're saying the temptation to sin can never come from God. Now which one is it? It's yes. God does not tempt us with evil. The purpose of James writing this is so that we would never get into a situation, we would never have a trial come about, we would never give in to sin and come out of it and go, well, God... God's the one who tempted me. God's the one who, who led me into that. And James has reminded us that while God allows trials in our life, there are trials that God allows to befall of. I mean, look at Abraham and his being asked to sacrifice Isaac. Look at Job and all of the trials that God allowed him to endure. And they're kind of a way of testing, of finding out who we are and where we are in our faith But the temptation to sin does not come from God. And it cannot come from God. Because we have a tendency to pass the blame on somebody when we sin. That's what we want to do. We want to pass the blame off on someone else when we sin. And so to try to blame God for our sin, it'd be kind of like being on a diet. Is there anybody in here that has never been on a diet? You will be one day, young man. It's like being on a diet, all right? So go with me. Put your diet hat on for a minute. You're going on a diet, and you're heading into the town where your favorite donut shop is. Everybody's got a favorite donut shop, right? Yeah. I have a lot of favorite donut shops, by the way. I have less donut shops that I find to be not... And, and, you know, my thing. But so you're on a diet. You're in the town where your favorite donut shop is. You're getting close to the donut shop. And you immediately say these words. As you know, the donut shop is coming. You say, God, if you mean for me to partake of one of these donuts, 
then I want you to open up a parking spot for me. And then you will in that parking spot and you say, God must have willed for me to give in to this temptation. I only had to drive around the building eight times for this spot to be here. God must have willed that to be the case. No, God didn't will that to be the case. You conceived that in your mind and planted that seed until you gave in to that temptation. And that's what it's saying. We can't say that it's a God thing when we're tempted to sin. It can't come from God. Why? God is holy. God can't be tempted with evil and therefore he doesn't tempt with evil. I didn't say God doesn't allow a trial. I said he doesn't tempt us to sin. That's not where our temptation comes from. So if the temptation can't come from God, but there is definitely temptation that does come upon us, uh, well, verse 14 starts to dive into that part of the equation. He can't, can't say I'm tempted by God, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by what? His own desires and enticed. He says, don't blame God for your temptations, but recognize that you have temptations and understand that they come from you. Our sin is a direct result of our fleshly desires. And so what happens to us? James says that we are lured and enticed. Has anybody in here felt lured and enticed? Anybody in here felt lured and enticed today? Literally, that word enticed is a fishing term. It means to catch with bait. See, Danny, finally, a message on fishing where somebody's not telling you to quit fishing. It literally means to catch with bait. So think about fishing for a minute. Any of you people who aren't fishermen, you've watched a fisherman at some point in time in your life. And so what's that fisherman do? You throw that, you throw that lure out there, and then you begin to entice the fish with that lure, don't you? You crank it. Sometimes you crank it fast and sometimes you crank it slow. But what you're doing is you're making that lure do something different as you crank it. And you're moving it along. And then that old fish is swimming along, minding his own business, staying away from the donut shop. And he looks up and suddenly there is this beautiful, beautiful sin. And I got to have it. And then that old big mouth bass says, and then you set that hook. And once you set that hook, Danny, you can... You can pretty well drive that fish where you want it once that hook's set in his mouth, can't you? Until the time that that fish spits that hook out. And then you send some more right after that. But, <laughs> but as long as you got that hook set in that fish, you pretty well drive that fish where you want to. He may pull back, but ultimately you're going to win. You're going to steer him around as long as you want to. It's the same way with us and our sin. It's desirous to us. It is something that we want. It's something that we want to do. It's something that inside of us we would really, really like to take advantage of. We want to partake in this sin. We see it. It's in front of us. And then it starts to call us, doesn't it? It starts to say, oh, come on. It's just one time. Oh, come on. You know it'll be fun. Oh, come on, Christian. We've had friends. We've, we've had fun. We've had these times before. Just come on. And then suddenly you reach out and you grab a hold of that sin. And then the hook is set. And then you can't steer yourself no more. Suddenly that sin is pulling you where it wants you to go. And it was because it was so enticing that you just reached out and took hold of it. And as long as that sin has its nasty hooks in your back, it is going to pull you places that you don't really want to go. 
It's going to take you in directions that you didn't really plan to go. The end of verse 14 says what? It is his own desires, right? He is drawn away by his own desires. And that, that suggestion there kind of shows us that James understood that we all have different things that entice us. We've all got different things that draw us and cause us to be enticed by sin. For some, it may be the allure of a strong drink. For others, it may be the allure of pornography. For others, it may be the allure of sexual immorality. For others, it may be laziness. For others, it may be to gossip or to slander someone in a position. For someone, it may be to complain against someone incessantly. For someone, it may be any number of things. But what happens... Whatever that sin is for you, I can promise you that it's going to be right there, just in front of you, enticing you, looking alluring, looking like something you want to grab hold of. Looking, and once you grab a hold of it, suddenly it's dragging you down that road that you swore you didn't want to go down again. And it all happened because we didn't recognize where our temptation comes from. We stopped recognizing that it came from ourselves and started to deal with it. And it's not going to be, if a strong drink is not enticing to you, that's not going to be the thing that's put in front of your face. It's just not going to be there. It's not going to entice you. If it passes by, you're not going to care. But if you're prone to gossip, everywhere you turn, there'll be a conversation with somebody talking about somebody else with something that may or may not be true. And you want to get right in there and give in to that temptation. So we can't say that the temptation is from God. We have to recognize that it's from our own fleshly desires. And not being able to recognize this, according to verse 15, says it brings us death. And James writes in verse 15, and he kind of gives us fair warning to the path that sin takes in our lives. He says, well, it's going to start... With our desires. What's that mean exactly? It means that sin doesn't just happen. It doesn't just fly out of nowhere and suddenly take place. Sin doesn't happen that way. No adulterous affair ever started out of the middle of nowhere. It started with a desire inside of a person's mind. It started with a desire to take part in that. And no sin has ever started and just appeared. It always starts with a desire in some, inside of someone. So that desire is where it starts, with our nature of sin. And at that point, we have to recognize it and deal with it. That's where we have to recognize sin and deal with it. According to James, what we see here is when the desire presents itself. All right, We're going to have the desire. Why are we going to have the desire? Because we have a nature of sin. We were born with a nature of sin, and we are going to have a nature of sin until the day that we die. But with that desire, we do not have to give in to that nature of sin. 1 Corinthians 13 says that he will not let us be tempted beyond what he gives us a way of escape and the strength to do so. He says he's going to give us a way out of that sin. So at the point in time where we have that desire... That's where we have to recognize that desire and flee from that temptation. Have you heard, uh, there used to be a little children's song, and it would, they would talk about these things, and they'd go, and flee from temptation. And I don't, none of the rest of you heard it. Okay. So 
it was flee from temptation. And the idea was that, that when you see that sin, we're going to teach our little kids that when it comes up, that's when you got to turn and run away. But what do we do as adults if we're not careful? We recognize the sin, and then we say, well, I'm going to slide up here as close to it as I can get without falling in. What does James say happens to us? He says, when the desire has conceived. Literally, that word there is the same as the word we use for conceived when a family conceives a child. That's kind of the same language that James is using. Literally, if you're not careful to cut that desire off and recognize where it comes from, it is going to conceive, and now all of a sudden you've got full-blown sin right there in the palm of your hands. Now you've got it. You've let it conceive, and you've given birth to a sin, essentially. And then if this desire is not dealt with, when it conceives and the sin comes forth, the sin leads ultimately to death. Now I am in no way insinuating. I'm not insinuating, I'm not saying, I'm not suggesting that believers, because this letter is written primarily to believers, I'm not suggesting that believers can fall into sin and lose their salvation and bring forth death. That's not the death that I'm talking about. What I am saying is that believers, if they're not careful and recognize their desires, can fall into sin and it can bring about sometimes a physical death. But it also can bring about a spiritual feeling of death. So it can bring about a physical death. I do believe it could be interpreted to be a literal physical death. A believer can give in to the temptation of sin, of strong drink, get behind the seat of a car, run their car off the road, and, and have a physical death. And that sin was what gave birth to the desires and all of those things, and they went forward with that. A person, I believe, can have a desire to sin, can allow it to conceive in their heart, take themselves down a road that leads to their physical death. But also... If you ever have been there, if you've ever lived long enough as a Christian to get to the point where you have fallen into a place of sin in your life, where you've had something in your life grab a hold of you and you were having a hard time getting away from it and you'd not given it to God yet because you still wanted to hold on to it. I don't know about you guys, but when you're in that state of rebellion, it can make you feel like you are spiritually dead. You've got no joy in your salvation. You open the Bible and the, the pages begin to feel empty. You listen to a sermon and it doesn't sound like anything but words from a rambling man. You go to church and you don't feel any joy. You sing a song and it doesn't feel like anything to you and you just can't figure it out. And the problem is not that God is any different than he was. The problem is that sin has grabbed a hold of your life and you cannot enjoy your salvation and you can feel spiritually dead. I've been there. And when I was embracing that sin in my life, I could not enjoy fellowship with God. And it is a miserable place to be. So what we have to do, one, we cannot blame our temptation on God. We have to recognize that it comes from us. And we have to flee from that temptation the moment that the desire presents itself, before it conceives and becomes taking us down this road of, of death. 
So we see that the temptation is not from God, it's from our own desires. We see, though, too, in the last couple verses, and we'll go quickly through these. It says, don't be deceived. Every good and perfect gift is from above. He goes on to say, don't be deceived. God gives us good things. God gives us perfect gifts. Again, it kind of goes back. It goes back to his holiness, right? We said, said the other week when we studied on his holiness that God is not capable of doing anything that isn't perfect. Because to suggest that he could do something that wasn't perfect would suggest that he wasn't perfect. And he is holy and he's therefore perfect. He does not need to change. Therefore, the things that he gives us, even though we don't always see them that way, they are good and they are perfect. And then it goes on to talk about the father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow turning and some of that stuff. And with all this talk about an eclipse coming tomorrow, you're thinking right now, Brother Jason's going plumb lunar on me. He's going to pull an eclipse. Listen, I don't really care about the eclipse tomorrow, to be totally honest with you, other than it may be a prophetic sign from God. But as far as the sun and the moon passing in front of each other, I ain't pulling my car over on the side of the road tomorrow. All right, I will stand outside and I'll look down because I don't want to go blind. But what they're talking about here has nothing to do with that. It's sort of. So father of lights. That was an old Jewish expression for God as the creator. And so he's writing that every good gift comes from our creator. And he talks about the lights and the shadows. And this is a reference. This is where we're going to get lunar for a minute, okay? This is a reference to the fact that as they would look in the sky, what happens? The sun and the moon and the stars and all those, everything's moving in our cosmos. Everything is moving. And, and might I add, it's moving on a perfect axis. It's moving exactly the way it's supposed to because it had a divine creator that breathed it into existence. But everything's moving. Well, what happens when light passes around objects? What's going to happen tomorrow since we brought the eclipse up? What's going to happen? There's going to essentially be a moment where the light is blocked by another body passing in front of it. What happens every day as the sun moves around? Shadows are cast. Why are shadows cast? Because things are moving. And that's why the shadows get cast. And so literally when he writes, the father of lights with whom there is no variation, no shadow of turning. He's literally writing, because God is God. And he is unchangeable. He cannot change. Therefore he doesn't move. Therefore he casts no shadow. His goodness is forevermore. Scripture tells us that he was the same yesterday, he's the same today, and he'll be the same forevermore. He gives us good and perfect gifts because he's God. And we have to recognize that these things come from God. He called us forth by his good will, for his glory. He called us out of bondage. For his glory, he saved us. That we would glorify him on this earth. That means the grace that is extended to us is extended to us ultimately because it glorifies God. So as believers, as, as we look to worship God through trials, I think we need to recognize just a few things from this text. As we look to worship God through our trials, we need to recognize that all good and perfect things come from our holy God, ultimately for his glory, that we would glorify him 
with our lives. And that ultimately we're enduring so that we may rejoice in our endurance and receive the crown of life, receive the victor's crown. But right there in the middle is that three-letter word called sin. And we have to recognize as we endure our trials that we cannot give way to temptation because the temptation is from us. So how do we respond to this message? I think we examine ourselves. How do I respond in trials? Am I able to recognize the temptation to sin? Am I able to flee from that temptation? Am I dealing with a particular sin or something in my life right now? And how do I respond to that this evening? Will you come lay it at the feet of Jesus? Am I living my life to glorify God? And am I worshiping Him through my trials? You may not be in a trial right now, but you've been through one. And you'll go through another one. And so how did you respond as you went through that trial? Let us pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that we're able to recognize that you don't tempt us with evil, God. But that you give us good gifts. Perfect gifts, even. And so God... Help us this evening to learn to worship you in our trials. To endure our trials with joy. That we might embrace the victor's crown. The crown of life, Lord God. So to keep that in mind, that we wouldn't fall into temptation. That we would recognize our sin and flee from it. And Father, most of all, that we would live lives that glorify you. And it's in your precious name that we pray, God. Amen. Thanks again for joining in. We sincerely hope that this has blessed you in some way. If you have any further questions, feel free to give us a call or check us out on the web at www.rockyvalleybaptist.org. Thank you and have a blessed day.